Fantastic. Hey, everyone. We should have slides in just a moment. My name is Dave Griffith. My co-host here, Vlad Romanoff. About four years ago, we started a show called Manufacturing Hub. Manufacturing Hub typically runs East Coast time of the United States, but we were gifted this opportunity to run a very normal time in Central European time. So Vlad and I are super excited to bring Manufacturing Hub here to Europe for the first of what we hope are many times to come. We do our very best to have an interactive show with our live audiences. So if we've got the opportunity to bring a couple of questions in, maybe we'll bring a couple of questions in. Please feel free to come close. Have fun. There is lots of beer. There is lots of snacks, especially for the folks listening at home. Maybe crack open a beer, even if it is a little. It, it, it'll be a lunchtime beer for our typical East Coast United States audience. Vlad, any thoughts before we welcome our first guest on? Looking forward to the conversations. I think we have three exceptional guests, and I think let's get started. Absolutely. First, we want to welcome Rainer Brim. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate the Thank time. Thank you for being here. Please here? take a seat. Yep. Rainer, we'd like to learn more about your background. Could you please take us on a journey on how you got started in automation and ultimately your role as CEO of Factory Automation today? You really want to know that? <laughs> of course. <laughs> in 96, I did an internship and that was in the US. Okay. And Siemens was programming automotive line for, for General Motors and they did it in S5. And the thing was, it was programmed in the US, mm -hmm. and all the comments of the program, was, which was instruction list, was done in English. Ah. And it was shipped into Germany, into Opel that time. And they only accepted comments in German. So my job was to translate the comment from automotive from English to German. I did that then, and then I said, no, I, this is not where I, because I came to the US. <laughs> and then I did automation, that was quite cool in Ann Arbor where uh, we did the automation for the U.S. postal system, mm -hmm. connecting sorters, and I was the first one using the S7 that time, and that was quite exciting. But honestly, I was studying computer science, mm -hmm. and I thought, oh my God, how you program a PLC? That ladder logic? Why should somebody do this? Mm -hmm. And that time I was even thinking, oh my God, that is old-fashioned. I learned in the meanwhile, that was done for electrician, and in the thoughts of electrician, that fits perfectly. And if you want to do bit operation, fits perfectly. But isn't the way how you do a modern software programming, yeah? So somehow, I'm looking back, maybe my idea was always you know, how we bring modern software development maybe into the, in the OT world. And so now, probably I have a job where I could a little bit influence that. Awesome. Absolutely. Reiner, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the comment of how do I program ladder logic? I, I think you will not be surprised to know that 25 years later, computer scientists of today are still trying to figure out how the heck we program ladder logic. No, but doing bit operation on a language is yes. quite, on a ladder logic is very easy, yes. but bit operation on a high level language is quite hard. Absolutely. A absolutely. So I'd, I'd like to bring us more towards present day in into this beautiful SPS fair that we're surrounded by. And I've made the comment a, a couple of times. It seems like Industrial Edge is part of almost every single one of these displays that we have here. If it is a cybersecurity display, if it is something else, Industrial Edge and Edge devices seem to be everywhere here which to me would signify the importance that you at Siemens 
find on edge devices. C can you tell us how you think edge devices will change our industry over the next three to five years? Yeah, for, for me, basically, it is you have a PLC and it's do a dedicated job and it should do the dedicated job. A lot of people say we don't touch it because that's really my insurance that a machine is running. Mm -hmm. Don't touch it. We do it via PLC. But on the other side, you want to bring IT technology and you don't want to do it in the cloud because a lot of customers tell us, I'm not sure, I don't want my data in the cloud. There's a company rule, forget it, don't do that. Yeah, That is one customer. The other say, we don't know, maybe then the connection is lost. So why couldn't we do something? I want to have IT technology, but I want to have it close to the machine. Others say we have certain latency times and with cloud might not work. So we want to have fast reactions. We have customers which are doing high speed AI inference, really high speed where even a data center some kilometer away wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. So we need to bring high speed workload using IT technology close to the OT workload. And for me, the best way how to do that is Industrial Edge. So Industrial Edge will be established or is going to be established as a platform where you could put different IT workload, but also maybe in the future more OT workload. If you want to handle OT workload in the same way you do IT, you do IT treatment, yeah, updates and so on. If I can follow up on Dave's question, and again, this is a pure curiosity of mine, I think that as time progresses, edge devices will only be more and more capable. Do you think that there's a possibility that controls will run on those edge devices? Or do you always think we'll have a room for PLC dedicated controls? Oh, we do it here. If you look at there, they have a virtual PLC and it runs yes. as an app on edge device. So the answer is, I could, can imagine it because they're doing <laughs> it. Yeah, I think there are going to be a convergence. Mm -hmm. and, but we need to figure out how to do that. Yeah because there are certain workloads which basically you say you want to have a PLC functionality or control functionality, but you want to have the benefits of do a regular update, being very flexible and creating a new instance on something without installing a new device, and you can immediately do that. Or you want to have easy access to a lot of data, perfect, do this, yeah? I think it comes together. By the way, there's also an option where we have on our uh, latest HMI panels, our unified panels, mm -hmm. there's edge built in. Mm -hmm. So I think it's not only PLC might move into Edge, but the other there way might now. be Edge moves into a panel or Edge moves into the PLC. And we, have a, we might launch soon a module where you have a PLC and next to it you put Edge and you communicate via backplane bus and getting full access of all data. So it's going to be a convergence. What format is the most appropriate one? The customer and the application decides it. I like that. I like that. For our viewers back home who may not be familiar with the conversations that we've been having here about the Industrial Operations X, could you maybe give us a vision behind it, but also what kind of the key challenges you're helping end users solve today? First of all, I think automation is very good for dedicated tasks. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Automation has some weaknesses of being very flexible if something is changing. Automation has some challenges being very open. And automation has <laughs> some challenges that people coming out of university, especially computer science, I did past, say, I want to have a different way how to treat a system. Yeah? And the question is now how you overcome that. Mm -hmm. And that is to say, there is a lot of, make a lot of sense to have 
the OT world, and that is why we have TIA, but we need to enrich it with IT technology. And enriching the OT world, in our case, totally integrated automation with IT technology in order to be more open, more flexible, easier for IT persons, and inter more interoperable, we created Industrial Operation X. And uh, should I now start what's all part of our direction, or maybe stop now? No, I, I <laughs> like it. If you can, please elaborate please, yes. further. Uh, by the way, all people have here beer. <laughs> should, should we ask them uh, to bring beer up? We, we, of course. We're beer already kind of nearly past six, or? Let's do it. Uh, could, ah, look. I don't know whether that's appropriate for <laughs> your audience. Absolutely. But as we are in Germany, I think that would be... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Prost. Thank you. No, Reiner, I... It's good, or? It is. Really good. <laughs> this is the first time we've had a live audience drinking beer and eating snacks with, okay. us, with us during the show. So thank you for helping to, to, to make that happen. Talking about industrial operations X, I think that it's very interesting, the, the concept of going beyond just the automation and how we can help the actual people as they go about doing their jobs. That is certainly something that we talk a lot about on Manufacturing yeah. Hub, and I'm very excited to, to see that and talk more about that with one of our upcoming guests, Do Dr. Gerhard Kress. He told me not to call him doctor, but we have to get that in at least one time. I think we're contractually obligated for at least one, I guess two doctors now with that. Reiner, one of the things that I have seen over and over again is artificial intelligence. And I'll be very honest to maybe some of our new viewers. Three, four years ago when Vlad and I were starting this, I was an artificial intelligence naysayer, right? I was like, it might be very interesting, but I think we are, at that point, I said probably five plus years away from finding artificial intelligence that was actually applicable to the plant floor. I think in the last 12 months, we've seen huge jumps forward with ChatGPT and ChatGPT style tooling. Now, our viewers got a bit of a sneak peek of Somatic Chatbot, which is turned into Industrial Copilot, which was launched earlier this week, which I think is very interesting. But I'd like to get your perspective on where you think artificial intelligence is gonna play a role in our industry moving forward. In a, in, a, in a lot of areas, and uh, my vision. I start. I, I come back to the uh, generative AI. My, what do you automate today? You automate tasks which are repetitive and which are known. So mass production, perfect for automation, highly repetitive. You know what to do. You might program some exception. If that happens, I do this. But you don't know. You don't program or automate the unknown. But if you want to be more flexible, demands are changing. If you talk about lot size one, lot size one is always unknown, or maybe not unknown, but you wouldn't program it because it's not repetitive. Mm -hmm. But I want to automate this. And if you want to automate this, you need AI because the automation systems need to identify itself mm -hmm. how to handle a certain thing. So I want to automate the unknown, and there AI plays a role. And we have something here which is called flex grasping. I don't know whether you've seen that. Not yet. So it's a module next to the PLC, having very high sophistic AI inside, and there you can grasp an object. Okay. The thing is, it doesn't look so fancy. You grasp an object, you see that somewhere. The thing is, the object is not trained. Okay. So you are grasping an unknown object. 
Really? Because a lot of systems grasping something, yeah, it was trained with synthetic data or real data, and then they know where to grasp. That system can grasp without knowing the object. So basically, we, this, the network was trained with the skill of grasping, not with the object. So we trained the skill. And now you can automate the unknown because you can grasp an unknown object. And you can think that further. So there is where AI will extend the way how we automate today with automating the unknown, one aspect. I think it's very important. Then for sure, AI will significantly have a lot of data analytics. I think machine vision is already through. It's very mature already where you use AI. Anomaly detection varies through, predictive maintenance, all that kind of standard use cases. I think it goes further and further, optimizing machines. That is one aspect where you need data. And again, it runs probably on industrial edge or an edge platform because you want to do the inference, not in the cloud. You want to do it directly on the machine. Second part. Third part, and now we come to generative AI. We see really that the large language models make really a big difference. And we were also surprised. We started that more than a year ago already. Yeah? Even when it's not so public, I know that it was public one year ago, and then immediately it was raising 100 million uh, users in two months, more than whatever TikTok, Instagram, everything. Yes. We were using it, but we also figured out in OT, you need to be industrial grade. In OT, you cannot do, there's no undo. The machine crashes, you cannot press the undo button. So it's a little bit different than the IT world. So the question is how we make it industrial grade. And we started making the industrial grade generating code. And normally you type something in a question and that is a user prompt. Mm -hmm. But there's a system prompt as well. And the secret in our IP lies in the system prompt. How we are feeding the system prompt that it generates something which is really applicable for the OT world. And then you need to a little bit adapt the output that it really fits then to run on a system. That we showed on Anova Fair already. Yes. And we enhanced that because we showed only having texture, a kind of a um, programming language where you write something. We show it here now with a, a graph yep. programming, which is the first thing I think, a first company showing it not only in textual, but also in a, in a graphical way. Number one, really exciting. And you can test and optimize it and you can write test optimization, you can document it. You can do, validate it, you can do that. And then I'm very excited that together with Schaeffler, so a real customer, yes. we are now using it in the operations phase. And that's even different. So you don't use a large language model where you feed in data in a clever way and take it out. We're using technologies out of that, but in our in a own data space. So you create our own data space of a machine with manuals and everything. And then you can now ask questions and the, large, and, and the mechanisms of large language model, they ret retrieve the right data which are appropriate and answer you the question. And we do that now for troubleshooting, very fast troubleshooting, and you can think it further now. Can you help me optimizing the machine? Mm -hmm. Imagine that. Yes. And that I think is really excited, and I'm really happy that we not only showing it in theory, but with a customer, a real machine. Reiner, having an OT background, I can certainly relate to a lot of those challenges. I think that there's gonna be a lot of changes in the workflow for at least OT engineers based on those technologies. I'm really excited to see what changes are to come in the next upcoming years. I think that there was an interesting question that was brought up yesterday at the press conference that there's maybe sometimes a negative connotation as to the job market. And I really like your answer, which is, I think we've seen that transition in the past, which ultimately unlocked even more opportunities. So I wanted to maybe ask you once again for engineers and for highly skilled individuals, can, what can they expect? What is your outlook on how that's going to enable them to create more value for the businesses? 
I don't know many OT engineers which have a lack on workload. Yes. <laughs> Number one. And I don't, and if I imagine me back sitting 96 in Detroit doing the translation of comments of an, a, a step five program, stupid task. <laughs> or if you do something, you're changing variables in a program and go to every program. Mm -hmm. Let's new technologies help to make that easier. And it's, we say it's a co-pilot. It's not a pilot, it's not out of, it's not in the kind of automotive, uh, auto, auto, automatic operations. It's a co-pilot, it helps, it makes things faster and focus really on the main topics. So I, I, I think that is significantly helping OT engineers to be faster and really focusing on the things where you don't, you cannot do it with a machine. Absolutely. If I may add to Reiner, your comment of translating code from English into German, I spent about three months of my life translating German drawings and documents into English so we could attempt to go get them made in the United States. And I cannot tell you how much I wish I had those months of my exactly. life back. And that my German is still terrible. <laughs> but do you speak German? No, it, okay. it, that, that's why I say my okay. German is still terrible. But Reiner, maybe to ask a broader question of the manufacturing industry as a whole, looking maybe three to five years down the road, how do you see the industry changing as a whole? Us doing things completely differently? Do you see us integrating all the technology we see on the plant floor to enable people? What do you see as changes in the upcoming years? First of all, as I'm an OT guy, I know how sometimes slow OT is reacting. So I think a lot of those technologies here, people say interesting, but let other use it first and then we see how it's working. Yeah? Let me revise that. 10 years. <laughs> Ten years. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> no, I was really impressed also on generative AI, how much that really helps. Yes. And I think it's our job as automation providers everywhere, is it, um, is it Siemens or others, it's our job to make this latest technology accessible to our people, to our programmers of PLC, the maintenance people, the service people in the, in the, on the shop floor, that's our job. And if you do a very good job there, then you might not even know that there is an AI in this robot mm -hmm. selecting the point because you do this, you're writing your letter logic program and there's a block and that block gets coordinates from a module. That module might run AI, but I don't care because I get my, my, my coordinates and that's it, yeah? So I think it's our job and that's our obligation also as Siemens. Make it easy. Make complex technology easy. Make it accessible to the OT world. That's our obligation. Because if you don't do this, I think the OT world will not progress in the, in the pace it needs to be. Because in my opinion, automation is really one of the key and a, a key um, solution for a lot of problems we have on Earth on sustainability, on lack of labor, on, on decoupling. So let's enable our people to really solve making a better world. I resonate with that thought and maybe as a follow-up, what else can we do to enable maybe the OT side to adopt faster? Is it maybe other learning opportunities? Is it us showcasing those technologies even further? What are your thoughts on maybe how can we reduce that adoption time from, let's call it 10 years down to five? Make it easy, number one, get away the fear. I think there are a lot of early adopters because normally in, in, a, in a company, you have the young people coming in. 
I, I like normally, when, when I was doing this programming in the US, I had a guy 55 and basically peering up and now having the knowledge because there's a lot of value in the OT knowledge. It's not like it's old fashioned. There's a lot of value pe uh, teaming up with people maybe which are much more familiar to the IT world, which no command line first is nothing new for them. They do this, yeah? Mm -hmm. Teaming up, um, I think that helps a lot. At least I experience that. Absolutely, Reiner. I think that we could ask you questions for 20 more hours, but we do want to be respectful of your time. We'd certainly like to, to thank you for answering some of these questions uh, for us today, and we hope to get you back on the show at some point soon in order to have a longer conversation. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Reiner. Appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. Oh, let's let's. If you, your beer gets yes. warm. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you, Reiner. Uh, next up, we'd like to welcome Efrasini to the stage, please. Hi. Hello. Thank you. I brought my own beer. <laughs> you did bring your own beer. We, we talked about this uh, earlier uh, yeah. with Reiner. With, with no one else did we prepare them to bring their own beer. But for the listeners at home that can't see it, all of our guests definitely had beer off stage. So thank you for that. Efrasini, we want to ask you a question that we ask all of our guests, right? We want to ask you about your background and your career yeah. and how you got here. And you are currently vice president for controls at Siemens. Do I have that correct? Mm -hmm. And so one of the questions that we always like to ask is how does one become vice president of controls at a large global company like Siemens? I think it started actually with my background. So I'm a physicist and mathematician, and I love complex systems. So oh. when I started at Siemens, my focus was on optimization. And there is so much optimization potential everywhere, yes. right? Look at the information that we have during engineering. How can we use, reuse it in production? And this is where I somehow got more and more pulled into these activities around the digital twin. And then if you think, where is the biggest optimization potential is what is happening during production, right? Absolutely. And this is where I was somehow sucked into the automation domain and in particular control. And it's really great, this complexity and the system that contains everything, this is what we have with, with control. Afrosini, if I can follow up with a control systems question, and I think we've explored this a little bit with Reiner, but I think we've seen a transition of control systems throughout the decades from relays to PLCs to now edge devices. So I wanted to get your perspective maybe on the current state of control systems and maybe some of the key values that we've not seen in the past yeah. that we see today. Yeah. So if, if you look around here, there is a lot of hardware innovation happening, right? And, and the, the speed of innovation is doubling. This is happening on the hardware side. You look at the processors, they're getting more and more powerful. And, and what we do every year is we bring that into our products, right? So we have our high-end PLCs that are now twice as performant as they used to be one year ago and have twice as much memory. So that's really cool. And this is the evolution where we, we are keeping up with the technology. At the same time, as Rainer mentioned, you have the IT world and you have all this potential mm -hmm. that you need to bring on, on the, to the shop floor. And this is, for us, this is a flavor of Industrial Operations X and we call it software-defined automation. So this means we are moving towards a hardware independency, we are moving into an even more open uh, ecosystem 
where you really bring the advantages of IT into control. And the first step for that is the virtual PLC that we have released here at the SPS Fair. Um, there is a booth right over there. You can have a look at it as, well, it's virtual, but <laughs> you can look at the application and the use case. And this is really cool because it shows, it combines all the successful uh, features that we have within our totally integrated automation ecosystem. Um, and it adds the IT values like maintainability, scalability, and, and so on. And so it's, it's really a cool proof point. I'm definitely excited, and again, just my personal opinion, I think that there's a lot of value on the OT side that is not fully understood of what these tools bring. And I really hope that as an industry, we can help educate, again, when OT engineers and help them see what has been already solved on the IT side and that is now being translated into OT. Absolutely, and if I may, for all of our first-time viewers, let you know a couple of months ago, Vlad and I, along with the team in Siemens USA, did a live build on Manufacturing Hub where we took a early beta version of the VPLC and some edge applications, IIH Industrial Information Hub. We took Performance Insight, we took a Siemens PLC, and we took a couple of other PLCs, and I'm not sure if I can legally name the other brands that, that we had together. I'm, I'm getting to know that we can't name them uh, here in the Siemens booth today. But we took those, we pulled all the information together, we showcased how we could go build everything up on the Industrial Information Hub, and then my fit, one of my favorite parts is that we basically got rid of the S7-1500 that we were using, we transitioned all of it onto an IPC, and we showed how we were running the exact same information virtually on the virtual PLC. We were discussing some of those applications. So if you guys are first time viewers, listeners, go take a look or, or take a listen to that. It was a bunch of fun. It was very much our first in-depth taste of Industrial Edge and what Siemens has to do. And Vlad and I are very excited about it. Mm -hmm. To go continue on that, that controls concept, Efrosini, uh, this year is a special year, right? It's 25 year anniversary of the TIA Totally Integrated Automation Concept. It is the V19 launch here to here this week at SPS 2023. And as we were discussing this, and as I said, TIA, especially TIA Portal, was very much the, the first time I, as a American, fell in love with Siemens. The fact that everything was together basically bundled in one package as opposed to a dozen other softwares that we had to figure out how it would work and hope maybe we can upgrade or downgrade based upon the software, but it never really worked. So to you, can you tell us a little bit more maybe about what the future of totally integrated automation with Siemens looks like? Yeah, I would love to, but let's look back again to the future because we need to learn also from the future. And if you think about um, totally integrated automation, what was it? It's not a portfolio, it's actually a promise. It was a promise to our customers that we will solve the integration challenge, that we will have one engineering for anything that is in our ecosystem and partner ecosystem. It is adding features that, like system diagnosis, which is a unique selling point, actually, of totally integrated automation. It's having fail-safe inside, solving motion applications. It is a promise that we have been enlarging for 25 years and continuing adding value to it with every release, and now we are at V19. Your question was now regarding the, the outlook, where are we moving to? And of course, there are certain challenges that um, are becoming more and more important. 
if I talk to my colleagues that are working, that are providing PLCs into the wind energy, they are telling me that within the last two years, the number of um, cyber attacks have, has doubled. And, and this is a challenge where we need, that we need to tackle, where we need to provide security to our customers, secu secure solutions and secure, secure answers. And this is where we're continuously working on making our portfolio more and more secure. You can look at the right corner. We have a lot of booth and we have a really cool game for cybersecurity also. So this is definitely something that is extremely important. And then I, I talked already about the hardware jumps and in performance and so on. But also within TIA portal, we are moving towards CI/CD. We have our new automation expansion, AX, Matic AX, for the IT minded guests, which is combined with TIA portal. So we have two use cases where you combine it and you really take the best out of the two worlds. And there is a lot of more to come. I could be speaking for the whole evening, but I think <laughs> we wouldn't have enough beer for it. We don't want to get you in trouble with any unannounced, let's say, releases, but we're certainly yeah. very excited and looking forward to yeah. it. I, I would say that's wrong. Our favorite thing is to get people in trouble for, for breaking news here on the show as opposed to, to waiting for the press releases to come out. But, but I agree with Vlad. We absolutely should stop yeah. you there and, and continue on that journey. So one of the items that got announced, I think, uh, a couple of months ago was Mendix on Edge. And we spent a bunch of time with the Mendix on Edge people, really understanding what that value prop proposition is for people who might not have all of that OT experience. For our listeners at home who probably don't know what Mendix on Edge mm -hmm. is, would you mind explaining a little bit about that yeah. and telling us where you think it fits the Siemens portfolio? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I will talk about what Mendixon is just, but first of all, why do we need it? And, and, and let's get back to Industrial Edge. Ryan and I was talking about Industrial Edge. It is an ecosystem. It must grow. And how do you make an ecosystem successful? You need the right partners. You need the right customers. You, you need to have the right applications. You need to create value. So what we have in Industrial Edge is we have device builders in the ecosystem, we have solution partners, and we have customers that are building their own applications. Um, and, and this is where this maker use case, this is something that we want now to push and to support. And this is why we brought together two super successful platforms. Um, Mendix is the market leader, actually, uh, also confirmed by Gardner for uh, low-code application development, and on the other hand, Industrial Edge. So we bring them together, we create a new portfolio element, we call it Mendix on Edge. And what does it do? It makes life simple, that's all. So what does it mean? You, have, you can program an application within Mendix, it's low-code, so it's super simple. You save 80% of development time. And then when you're done, you make a few clicks, and it's published in Edge. And you can decide whether it's an app that you only want to use for yourself or whether this is something that you want to put on the marketplace and sell it. Um, so it's very cool because it, it simplifies the life for app builders significantly. And in the end, it's our end users that want to combine these applications, for example, with a virtual PLC. And this 
is what we enable with Mendix on Edge. And, and if I can ask you a question based on what we've heard about Mendix earlier today, I think it also provides very interesting connectors that are very difficult, I want to say, based on personal experience to yeah. implement in the past. One example was SAP, but yeah. I think it simplifies also the data connectors from various different vendors at that MES and ERP level. Yeah, yeah. the idea is really make this life simple and let the customers or the app builders focus on what they need to do, which is building the application. And the rest is taken care of. And, and that's really the cool thing about Mendix on Edge. Awesome. To take us again, maybe I'm going to change that time frame instead of being three to five years uh -huh. to have a further outlook on how you see manufacturing change based on what we're releasing today. And as we're going to see more and more adoption of these tools, what do you see in that maybe longer time frame as we adopt those technologies? Is that going to fundamentally change the way we manufacture things? Is it going to speed up production, more data? What is it going to change in the, our space? I think everyone needs to make the best use of the data. The AI will become more and more central in whatever we do. And then this topic of interoperability, I want a virtual PLC to interact with an AI application. We have a use case being shown over there where we have vision inspection. So it's basically a quality use case. We want to sort out the tubes that have the wrong print on them. And there is an AI application and it runs next to a virtual PLC and they interact. And this sort of interaction and interoperability, this is something that will come more and more. So we are moving towards a hardware independence, towards a more modular world where I might have some control application, some AI application, maybe motion or failsafe separately. And this, this modularity and interoperability, this is where we believe the future will lie. I think there's going to be a lot of exciting things coming our way. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. I am excited to see what's going to be changing again, manufacturing in the upcoming years. A lot of different booths showcase these technologies. Thank you so much, Afrosini. Really appreciate it. Was it was a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you, Thank Thank you, you. so much. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Okay. Awesome. Come on up. I, I would say, uh, Gerhardt, very great to see you. Uh, Hello. Hey. Before we jump in, I oh. just want to again thank everyone for being here today, both live here, live on the Manufacturing Hub channels, and on the Siemens channels as well. I am going to go make the shameless plug of if you guys haven't found Manufacturing Hub in the past, you guys can check Vlad and I and all of us out on manufacturinghub.live which is the website where you can find all of that information. Beyond that, we stream live on LinkedIn, so you can check us out on LinkedIn. Please connect with Vlad and myself. Follow the Manufacturing Hub YouTube channel. This is episode 144, so if you guys have some free time, if you're here locally and have a couple of trains delayed on the next couple of days, we certainly have the opportunity to fill the hours if you want to learn some more. Thanks. Gerhard, welcome on stage. Thank Be you very much. Before we dive into the accelerator, I wanted to get, again, your background. And I did a little bit of research. I know you've done a lot of data work. So maybe also discuss your data science background and give us how you got into automation and ultimately how you're leading the accelerator program. So from my background, <clears throat> I'm actually a physicist and a political scientist. Ooh, that's Exactly, that confuses every HR organization, <laughs> and that's fantastic, because they can't put you suddenly into a box. And then I worked for consulting for a while, McKinsey, 
came to Siemens many years ago, more than I can count. And be before I took over the, the work at Siemens Accelerator, I actually built up a large IoT platform in the rail space called Radigen, which is really about how can we help our customers to be more on time, have the trains and the infrastructure available much more to the schedule. Our target has been 100% availability, and we built up the whole thing with 17 large partners together and delivered on that. And then based on that, I joined Headquarter, setting up Siemens Accelerator, and the, the core target is really how can we help our customers across all of Siemens, not, not just the automation space, also in the building space, the electrical space, the mobility space, to embark on the journey of digital transformation. Because we see customers all across struggling, struggling to generate the value, struggling to understand what are the first steps they should be doing, what's really great bringing them forward, and how to leverage what they have. And I think this, when you look here at this whole booth, that's what the booth is about. We're not saying to our customers, do a floor sweep, get everything new in. No. We have a lot of experience in our customers. We have a lot of invested assets. How can we help them in their situation to move forward? Gerhard, if I can take a quick step back, <laughs> that unconventional background. Yes. If you were to say, maybe, did it provide an advantage for you in this field? Do you believe a different route would have been better? What, were you, what are your thoughts and maybe advice for the younger generation that is looking at uh, education, let's call it? So it's a very non-standard background. And mm -hmm. of course now I could tell you a wonderful straight story how this all helps you do what I'm doing. And probably I would not be here if I would have not taken that journey. However, I can tell you when I took those different steps. So between my physics degree, I, I went to an NGO for a year, then went to a different university doing political science or international relations, European studies that never had the master plan in there. I actually did those things that I thought bring me forward, helped me to grow personally, that I enjoyed. And later on, it turned out that topics came across where I could apply those things. Mm -hmm. And being a physicist by formation, when you then um, deal a lot with AI topics, it, it's reasonably easy to learn the mathematics behind that, even if you haven't done that in your degree but then how to implement that, how to work with customers, how to build winning coalitions. That's not what a physicist is usually good at. That's where my other background helps me a lot. Yeah? And I think, so I can only give as an advice, look where you think you can learn most, how you can grow. Don't try to over plan your career because none of the jobs I had the last 10 years existed when I was at university, none of them. And I guess you mentioned that learning was easy. I, I, I probably would not say that myself, but maybe <laughs> what was the, the transition or the first steps into, again, like automation and learning these technologies was like for you? What was the learning curve like? Now, <clears throat> when you look into automation here, when I came to headquarters and really wanted to, to deep dive on that, I went to, to Reiner and, and basically asked him, how can I understand this business really well? spent an awful lot of time in the factories. With Marcus, he, he was running the booth here, he explained to me exactly what the customers need, talking, going out to customers, talking, listening in. Otherwise, you cannot understand and not learn it. There's so much knowledge and wisdom in here. You have to understand it, but then also, where can I make a difference? I will never be a better PLC engineer than the ones we have. Why do I need to? But bringing 
IT digital topics, which I really understand very well, into the world of a customer and how to solve a problem. That's what I understand. Okay. And that's what can make a contribution. But yeah, it, it took quite a while to, to, to learn that and to listen to customers because they're the ones who actually drive this. Interesting. I, I, I think that, uh, again, it's a very diverse background. A, a, as you said those two things, I'm like, yes, that is a little confusing. But I, I love your, your concept of it was the journey that brought you here. And with most of our guests, we ask them for, for career advice. And most of our guests talk about a very similar path of I start. I thought I was going to start to do one thing, and I tried five other things, and I ended up in this manufacturing and industrial environment, and it allowed us to have and use this diverse set of skills. So thank you so much for, for that, Gerhard. I'd like to come back a little bit to Accelerator, right? We hear a lot about Accelerator. You gave us a little bit of a hint of, of what Accelerator is, but maybe for the listeners at home and the people who don't know exactly where Accelerator starts and stops, can you talk a little bit more about what Siemens Accelerator is, maybe the mission, maybe some of the things that you're working on, please? Yeah. Let, let me try to ma make it simple. <clears throat> when Evrosini talked about TIA, she said it was a promise. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what Siemens Accelerator is. We're seeing our customers struggle with digital transformation. We talk to them and ask them, what can we do? What can we make better to help them on their journey? Okay. And basically, we, we saw three types of answers. There were a couple of things that we had to sort out in our own mess, making things easier to find, making our applications more modern, open, finding common standards. That was one, one set. So that's internal homework. And we, 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 we target that. The second thing was saying, we need to speed up with delivering value. This you can only do when you bring partners on board, when you actually take partners serious. Okay. Not just like they're also there. No, they're front and center of what we do because they provide they have so much knowledge, more knowledge than we can ever have in all the different industries where our products are being used. And the third big thing is really creating packaging offerings that address the business problems of a customer that actually help them drive value. And when you look around this whole booth here, they would not be existing with a Siemens Accelerator. Almost everything we show here says, you have a business problem, how do you solve it? With a mix out of software, hardware, and services. It's not just the one, we have a box for it system. No, it's not. We're augmenting our portfolio by saying, we look at your problems, we solve it in a way that can be scaled, because otherwise it's never going to work economically, but we provide something that, that addresses your problem. And we just launched in the last four or five weeks 150 use cases across all of Siemens in the building space for hospitals and so on, but also food and beverage. We said these are specific packages that really address a customer issue. Give an example, everybody in the food industry, but also in pharma has this whole issue around uh, cleanliness at the workplace, documentation for that. That's something we can provide of our own systems in a reasonably fast and easy way. But then we need the partners to help us bring that so that these documentations adhere to the local laws. Because just because it works in the US and fulfills the criteria, it's not going to do in the UK or continental Europe or Asia. So bringing that together is a challenge. So long story cut short, what is Civil Accelerator? It's the way we change our offerings so our customers can drive their digital transformation faster, further, and with less risk. 
I, I love that. And I may, if I may just add on to that, Vlad Gerhardt, one of the things that I have found throughout the entirety of SPS is very much the talk of the partnerships and the ecosystem and the yes. openness. And that, as North Americans, Vlad and I, we don't necessarily have shows like this. We don't have these large conversations. So I find it very refreshing. And I think it's amazing to see especially a bunch of large European companies come together to share a bunch of that knowledge. And it's very refreshing and it feels good to be able to see this. And at least I am hopeful that we see more of that transition to the other side of the Atlantic Ocean at some point soon. <laughs> and by the way, the ecosystem is important because what you do is you combine different knowledge, different IP to solve a customer's problem. And what we see more and more customers telling us back is the speed of solving a problem is a value in itself. Of course, I could develop all of it myself if I have infinite time, infinite resources. But why would I do that? Yes. Look at the example we launched at Imon just a couple of weeks ago. The whole digital twin story for machine builders together with DMG Mori. Our contribution is the digital twin of the Cinemeric and having the control really under control. We know exactly how that works. We can digitize it wonderful. If you want a credible twin of the, the complete machining system, you need so much more expertise in areas that we don't have. You need the weights, the, the vibration patterns of these arms and whatever else there is in there. We can't do that, but Dim Mori can. Combining that, suddenly you get to an outstanding offering Dim Mori could have done it on their own, we could have done that, but jointly, it's an enormous value for the customer. Just That's imagine you can, on one hand side, do a virtual commissioning, so you can actually start producing faster, up to three months, and better, because you can test your, your CNC scripts much more aggressively, but you can also run the, the little twin comparing to what's actually happening, and understanding where your plans don't meet realities, and, and steer against that way before it creates a problem. And I think these are amazing values we can provide. Mm -hmm. we could, none of us could have done it on our own. Mm -hmm. And that's fantastic. Absolutely. And maybe as a follow-up to that, on the data side, because yeah. again, we know you have a, a background in uh, big data, which I think is very interesting. And I believe that now more so than ever, it's easier to access data on the shop floor and as we've mentioned before on the MES ERP sides in order to drive business value, make decisions and optimize systems both from the IT and OT sides. What kind of maybe interesting other use cases we can leverage that data for and ultimately looking a little bit further also as the platforms mature, what do you believe is going to be even more accessible when it comes to utilizing that data? What we see today, especially with the, the, the cost of sensors going down so much, we have an abundance of data. However, that's not solving our problem because we don't need data, we need information. And in, first of all, you need to understand which data is helping you to answer your question. If you don't know the question, data is not going to help you. Mm -hmm. The second part is there is a tremendous difference between industrial AI and consumer AI. Give you two examples. If you go to Amazon.com and buy a book and then Amazon's gonna propose you 10 more books. Yes. If five of them are for your taste, you're happy. If eight or nine are for your taste, the, the, the difference is not, there's no additional value for you. 
And if not, then you're a bit annoyed, but there's no, no problem there. If you have that industrial AI, it's a very completely different thing. If the mean time engine failure is a couple of years, you're looking for the needle in the haystack. You are looking for those areas where really a problem appears. 99.99% of the time, the data is completely boring because the system does exactly how it was designed to do it. So you get an abundance of good data, you get very little bad data. The, the failure modes that you see in the first five years are mostly first of its kind. So you can't learn from the past. Huh? You have to find a completely different way with a very high prediction accuracy. We're talking about in the high 90 something percents. You need to break, work, do that differently. You cannot do that purely on data, purely on algorithms. You have to bring in frame conditions from engineers, you have to bring in artificial data, and you have to have a different approach how you balance out your models. And the other thing is, once you bring a model into operation, into full production, the customer is going to rely on that 24-7 for the next years. Yes. And they're going to pull out all the resources they have to buffer that issue. So if your model doesn't work, there's no buffer left. So it's a completely different thing. That's what, what Rainer said before, looking at large language models, they have to be industry grade. And that is an awful lot of work. I've done that myself for years. We've built for MTR Hong Kong, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, MTA in, in, in Singapore, a very large asset performance management model with over 90 AI-based use cases. Wow. This is probably the most demanding customer you can have. It took us four years to get to that level that they accepted it. But if they do, they're the most demanding customer in the world. So we know we, we can do it. What so were they trying to solve? Sorry to... It's basically around being more punctual, so le less delays. They had 12 in a year. That was too much, yeah? Okay? Having less failures, shifting intervals on maintenance without increasing the risk profile, taking decisions of either repair, refurbish, or reinvest on certain assets and components, which is basically saving them on their cash flow, and doing that on the metro lines. We start with the downtown line, where actually all the people go to work. So if those things fail, people don't appear to work. It's as simple as that. Yeah? So how do you address that? First of all, you need to understand your system. You need the domain know-how around it. You need the engineering space around that. You need to find ways how to simulate, for example, to get artificial data. You need to have data scientists that actually get their hands dirty. You don't need the people sitting on looking at click screens. No, you need the people who go into the factory, who sit with the customer, who hear the pain, um, who understand what they mean. You need to identify what is the right data. What do you need, not what do you get? And out of terabytes of data, it could go down to a couple of gigabytes that are really what you're looking for. Interesting. So, this is the exercise you have to go through. It's painful, it takes time, but our customers can demand from us that we do it for them. Interesting. If I can follow up, and I think that's a really critical point based on what I've seen in the industry, which is essentially having a lot of data, but having a very difficult time to find applications, right? And yes. as you mentioned, I think it's maybe not the right approach. So what is, maybe how do you evaluate and come up with business cases that can be addressed and then figure out where to get that data. Any thoughts? <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I, no I love this. E super, we only ask easy questions on this show. 
<laughs> no, I, I, I love it because it's always what you, when, when you look into the classical dogma of data science is just look at the data. That doesn't work here. Yes. <clears throat> because then you have data looking for a problem. Huh? So the first thing you normally do, you look at correlations and data. So classical data science looked at correlation and equals it to causation. That's not the case here. Yeah? If something turns faster, it's going to get warmer. Oh, yeah, surprise. That's how it's built. <laughs> it's not helpful. I actually want to see when it's not getting warmer or when it's getting more warm than it should. Mm -hmm. So I want to see when the slope changes. So the, the way you approach it, basically, is you look at what are the problems your customer is facing? What type of challenges do you see? Is it about a maintenance topic? Is it about throughput in the line? Then you bring the right people together and say, which information would help me to build a model like that? What's around that? What, what frame conditions can I build? Most of these systems have thousands of different data points, but only, so if you would put a feature back, that would be thousand dimensional, but you only have 10 actual dimensions that's pushing on the system. So you're completely over-specified. How do you reduce that stuff to something that's manageable? And how do you use the, the, the easiest model? Because the more complex the model is, the more difficult it is to understand what it does, and the more difficult it is to, to debug, and the more difficult it is to operate. This is where you get the right people in the room, and usually somebody on the engineering side, the data scientist, people who understand the process that we are supporting, and then you very often a customer, and then you drive that together. And then you apply all the, the rigor of IT and data science on that later on to make sure it really works. Oh, of course, you need a data engineer because the data is not going to look like you want it. Never, ever. Absolutely. If I may follow on to that, right? We talked a lot about data. We talked a lot about data ops and artificial intelligence. You had mentioned something earlier about code reviewing and probably CICD and software-defined automation. So yeah. a lot of our listeners have listened to us talk about industrial DevOps and kind of everything along that. I, I think the first time Vlad and I did a theme around that was episode 30-something, right? So we've been talking about it a lot in the last couple of years. From your perspective, from the Siemens and the Accelerator perspective, where do you see industrial DevOps, software-defined automation, changing the way we work? Oh, it's, it has a massive influence <clears throat> and in, in so many ways that, that we probably don't even realize it today yet. So first of all, what we see is we, we see less and less people who are, let's say, traditionally educated on step seven or right now you said step five. We probably don't get those people anywhere. But people come with a background in, let's say, DevOps, CICD pipelines, those type of topics. And that, that's what that's what there's experience there. The other part is we see IT and OT merging together. When I'm talking to customers in about half the cases, there's a CEO on the table, either as an important stakeholder or even as decision maker. And then suddenly they ask questions about ISO 27001. They ask questions about ITIL processes, what's an instant problem, how do you handle changes? And half the, the table is like, what? And the other one said, yeah, of course. Yeah. So, what, what we are doing in Siemens Accelerator is we're trying to make it easy for the customers to use it. That's why we provide applications as SaaS, rising from the cloud, or if they're on the edge, you're providing them with all these automation elements in there that you do not need a large-scale IT department. That's why we partner with IT companies, like you see over there, the partnership with ServiceNow on the um, Industrial Asset yes. Hub, because we're addressing this way the IT question 
And there's very often a tension between the IT and the OT guys on the customer side. We, we, we're trying to release that tension a little bit. Mm -hmm. we, are, we, have, or we bring all the experience we have on software development into the OT environment. Afrosini mentioned Simadi Gaik. For me, it's just DevOps for automation. It suddenly looks like a DevOps environment. Mm -hmm. We use the, the best DevOps system you can have, but underneath is still TIA because TIA is needed to make sure everything is consistent. But of course, it brings you all the tooling that you expect, all the automations behind that. And then, of course, you link it with ChatGPT to write code, to document code, to debug code, to translate old code. Mm -hmm. So the, the whole thing that, that Civil Accelerator is doing is we're driving for simplicity, making things easier. The last thing I would like to, to mention here is one of the big challenges when you go to these modern approaches, you have these big IT departments, mm -hmm. But the people who understand the problem don't sit there. You have the people on the shop floor, the people in the depot, the people in the factory, in, in whatever the repair shop, whatever that is, out in the service organization. They know what the problem is. How can we make sure that they can resolve those problems? That's why we have things like Mandix. The, the reason is it's called citizen developer, but basically yes. move development work much closer the people who have the problem. <clears throat> I went to one of our factories in Bad Neustadt, and one of the things that, that I loved there was this, the shift lead that actually had a Mendix application to have for every shift all the latest KPIs, quality, output, whatever is there, was out there, and that was really cool. Probably next one is going to have a different application, but you always had the right data. Previously, they would write PowerPoints, bringing the stuff close to the people, software that matters, software that is industry scale, and that you can rely on. Gerhard, if I can ask you a very difficult question, once again, looking five to 10 years into the future, what are you seeing? Are, once these tools become available, once we have all the right data, we're making right decisions, we're practically running lights off manufacturing, <laughs> at least in the perfect world, what do you see in five to 10 years? What I've seen in five to 10 years is that we're going to have a much more flexible production. People are still going to consume, so we need production out there. Mm -hmm. We're going to have better products, faster to market, much more flexible supply chains in there, completely sustainable. Mm -hmm. Because you can't get sustainability without digital transformation. There's no option that works politically in my perspective. And we're going to get much more products that you need when you need them, how you need them. I like that. I really like that. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. I think we've gotten a lot of insights. Yes. Thank you very much. Gerhardt, thank you so pleasure. much. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. Thank, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us here live and live all of the places that you can possibly find us. Vlad and I have once again done the thing where we have more questions than times that we could possibly fill. If you guys would like to join us, check out manufacturinghub.live. Follow us on LinkedIn and everywhere that you can download and listen to podcasts. We go live on Wednesdays and podcasts get into your ears on Thursdays. We will see everyone here again a couple of times tomorrow. But until next time, we'll see everyone soon. Thank, Thank you, you, everyone. Bye-bye.